hi, I'm here with Adam Strandberg. We're here to talk about science and cool stuff. But like, yeah. if you send me, um, not like a CV, but I can give oh. you a more formal introduction so that people are like, oh, okay, this guy's pretty cool. We could also, I mean, if you want to, if you want to start with the standard, you know, tell me, tell me how you got here thing. Uh, uh, I'd be, I'd be happy to do all that. Um, yes. Tell, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> no, my childhood. I, I don't know what I did in my childhood, man. I, uh, I, I sat in my, I sat in my room and, uh, and played, well, no, it, it, I, I played a bunch of guitar hero and then I sat in my room and played guitar. <laughs> that was, that was what I did in my childhood. <laughs> hey, at least you made the, the transition to the instrument. You know, a lot of people are, are brutally good at guitar hero. And then you, you out, you know, can you play actual guitar? And they're like, no, no, not really. Yeah. No, I th- it, there was, there's a specific moment when I was playing with my friends, we were on multiplayer mode and we did like uh this was guitar hero three era and we, we were playing uh one by metallica and we got mm. like a million points on expert mode um uh which is a big deal and then and then i was excited and then i just sort of sat there and was like was like why am i doing this <laughs> like yeah. like like i'm putting so much time into this like couldn't i learn the actual instrument so so i did i've definitely had that moment i did not get into video games uh that was like one of those weird things my parents were strict on. So like we didn't have a TV in the house till I was like 10 and I didn't get a video game system until I was like 16 or 18 or something. And I started with a Nintendo 64 that I mm-hmm. bought at a flea market for like 20 bucks and it came with a couple of games. But the only one I really got into was Super Mario 64. That game, I think, remains to this day like the best video game of all time it's just so clean and fun to play i got all 120 stars mm-hmm. the only thing that really beat that out for me was uh halo 3 i played that a lot with my friends and got like really good but then i remember i had a similar moment to you where i think i was watching youtube clips of mlg like professional gamers Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, oh my God, this guy just got a triple kill, with the grenade and the battle rifle, you know, head tap stuff. And then I sort of like zoned out and I was like, wait, what am I? I need to be doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> I used to read, man. Like, what am I doing? So, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> that was that was a good way to, to intro. But I will ask you, yeah. um, Adam, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got here and where you're at in life and what your interests are and how you want to save the world and <laughs> well save it, it save the world i mean maybe maybe we can talk a bit that uh, uh, a bit more i think actually um uh, uh i i i have I shy away from wanting to save the world in many ways and instead want to sort of uh you know synthesize big picture. Uh, big picture theories about the world, but yeah, mm-hmm. I guess so. So it, 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 right now, I'm I'm in a sort of uh, liminal slash starting phase on being a biological researcher. So I guess we can sort of trace how that happened. Uh, so when I was in high school, I went to a a vocational school in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts, called uh, Minuteman Regional High School, which um, uh, is like a regular vocational school in that it has, um, you know, things like carpentry and cosmetology and cooking, but it also has a biotech program because it's in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Lexington is a, a wealthy district and, and B, um, it's in the sort of 95 belt, which is a classic uh, uh, biotech zone uh, for the 
development of all the initial biotech companies in like the 90s. Um, and so, so I went there, uh, uh, well, I went there be, it, it, because when, when I was in eighth grade, I read, uh, James Watson's book on DNA and then I had a vision. The that double someday, helix. Yeah. 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 The, the, the double helix. Book. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and from that, I, I had, I had a vision. I was like, I want to genetically engineer lizards to turn into dragons. Um, <laughs> was, it's funny was... you mentioned that because Ginkgo, one of the sayings internally mm -hmm. is like, there will be dragons. <laughs> uh, I think that comes right after respect the tech, which I mm. find hilarious. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have to respect the tech when the tech is dragons, right? Right. Exactly. Someone tried to argue that they're not thermodynamically feasible and other people are like, don't ruin this for us. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll make I mean, it work. I lizards lizards with wings would be sufficient <laughs> i would I, I would consider that sufficiently dragony to have made a dragon um yeah so so i i, I went to i went to this uh biotech academy uh which was fun um and i graduated uh and then i went to mit and i was originally planning on um, majoring in biological engineering uh but i i took as a as a freshman everyone is required to take this uh, intro physics course, um, uh, and and naturally, as a sort of trap for extremely ambitious MIT freshmen, they they divide it into a sort of normal level and a hardcore level. So I took the hardcore level, uh, uh, and and I was uh, I was just deeply enthralled with with how much it seemed like um, in every class we were getting uh, uh, just new revelations mm -hmm. into how the the universe worked. Um, uh, and that, and that seemingly, you know, if you, if you follow, follow this path and learn, um, all of theoretical physics that, that you will be able to gain insight into the, into the sort of ultimate workings of the universe. Um, uh, and so, so I, I decided then, uh, and then, and then also I looked at, I looked at biological engineering and it seemed like, like, while, while there was some stuff that I wanted to do, there was a bunch of other finicky stuff of like, oh, I don't care about how microscopes work and et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, which in retrospect is, is I think a very, um, it's a very, it's a very uh, a weird view of how of how science works, but that's how I felt at the time. Um, so I went into physics, and and uh, I felt like I was uh, like I was committed to to doing uh, theoretical physics. So I learned, you know, quantum mechanics and cosmology and stuff. Um, uh, and I eventually ended up doing a a uh, undergraduate research um, uh, opportunity with Alan Guth, um, who, uh, if you know about the theory of inflation, which is supposed to explain uh, basically how the the big bang worked in the first you know like 10 to the minus 30 seconds of the universe or something um uh he, he alan guth came up with the theory of inflation uh uh and he was having a sort of squadron of undergraduates work on um developing uh uh, numerical predictions from different variations on that theory. So the idea is essentially the the very early universe would be dominated by um, quantum mechanical fluctuations uh, in in the mass uh, sort of the, it, 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 the field of mass, how much mass density there is, and that um, during the Big Bang, those tiny quantum fluctuations would get stretched out um, uh, by many many orders of magnitude uh, to the point where mm -hmm. uh, you would be able to actually see them. Um, in the cosmic microwave background uh, as fluctuations oh, okay. in the sort of uh, density of say galaxies um, uh, throughout the universe. So, which is so my understanding, let me just see if I get this right. So like not even a second after the big bang, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's so hot and dense that like none of the energy is condensed in the particles. So mm -hmm. it's like the point at which our, our understanding of physics is like, 
definitely not intuitive as, as human beings, just the scale is, is out there. And then, Mm -hmm. um, now of course we can't see the big bang, but we can look at the, the cosmic microwave background, which I think was discovered by some physicists who, uh, they found it in like, you know, those like CC, uh, CRC TV, the static, they were trying to measure something and they caught it. They figured it out in a very strange way, but yeah, you mm-hmm. have this like staticky background of the universe and he was trying to find points that were still coming in that you could measure and work backwards and say, okay, this is one of those super stretched out orders of magnitude inflation uh, things at the beginning. Did I, well, so, so, did I butcher that or? Well, it, 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 it's, uh, it's almost, so, so basically it, when, when, they, when they discovered the, the cosmic microwave background, they, they discovered that... Um, uh, uh, it's a it's a spectrum of light at about uh, I forget whether it's like two point four or two point seven Kelvin um, uh, something uh, like 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 very very cold um, uh, so in the in the same way that that any other thermal body radiates like a like a characteristic spectrum of light um, uh, so does the sort of uh, background of the entire universe it just does so at an extremely low temperature um, about two Kelvin uh, and and everywhere you look. Um, uh, it is almost exactly uh, the same intensity um, uh, in mm-hmm. every direction, um, uh, which, which in in cosmology they refer to as uh, you know isotropy, um, uh, which is that it's uh, it, it everything seems to be the same in every direction, um, uh, which is actually one of the one of the sort of uh, weird features um, of the universe that uh, Alan Guth was intending to explain uh, using the theory of inflation uh, is basically that that uh, everything got uh, got roughly uniformly stretched out um, uh, from a narrow beginning, uh, and that's that's part of why uh, everything seems to be roughly the same in every direction. Uh, but there are um, very very small uh, uh, fluctuations in uh, how intense that light is. <clears throat> um, uh, and 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 the idea is that those 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 small fluctuations in intensity. Um, correspond to uh, the mass density of the universe at the time that the that that light was emitted mm-hmm. uh, so so it, so specifically the, the the cosmic microwave background is light that was emitted when um, uh, the universe transitioned from um, basically being a giant ball of plasma to being a giant ball of um, of hydrogen gas uh, so, so within within the plasma, um, uh, there was there was a bunch of light going around, uh, but it was it was trapped inside. Uh, but then, when the when the plasma cooled off enough to become gas, the light could escape uh, and fly out, and that's that's the light that we see as the cosmic microwave background right now. Mm. Um, and this was, <laughs> uh, let's see, when when did I work on this? I think I worked on this in like 2012, 2013. So it's been like seven or eight years since I since I thought about this. But I think that that was. That was a couple hundred or a couple thousand years into the evolution of the universe. I think I feel like I'm completely butchering that, but it was it, it was it, it was well after the the um, sort of initial Big Bang. But the mm-hmm. idea is that at that time um, there were still uh, 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 very small fluctuations in the overall um, mass density of the universe that were actually uh, fluctuations that were present um, right at the birth of the universe that had then been stretched out. Uh, by exponential expansion. 
Um, yeah, you're you're looking at the universe's uh, like uh, th- like stretch marks from its birth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, essentially, essentially. Um, uh, and so, it, it, specifically, what it, what we were looking at was, um, uh, you know, inflation. Inflation is sort of a is sort of a general class of theories. Um, uh, it says it says something like you you have some you have some field whose uh, energy is constant. Um, uh, given the amount of space that it has, and uh, unfortunately, I don't remember how to how to phrase this intuitively. But if you plug this fact into um, the the Einstein field equations, so the things that that uh, describe general relativity, that what you end up with is an exponentially expanding um, uh, space time. Mm-hmm. I remember there was when I was back in high school, I was very into physics. I still am, but back then I was reading a lot of those, uh, like, uh, you know, pop sci type books. And one of the questions was, is the universe going to end, uh, in either like a big crunch, like, is it going to slow down and then start to come back together and then maybe do another big bang, or is it going to keep expanding outward forever? And then the way it it would end is basically like, heat death slash everything around is moving away so fast relative to one another. It's like faster than the speed of light. So like the, if there were still people, you know, trillions of years from now, they would look up and the night sky would just be dark. Like they wouldn't see anything else. They, they would just be like, oh, okay, I guess it's just this one planet <laughs> or, or solar system, you know, uh, which is pretty grim. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. um, Anyways, we won't have to worry about that because yeah. we'll be long gone. Well, I, I, I mean, I mean, I think I think there's the, there's an interesting thing about that, which the, it, it, there's there's definitely a, a lively debate in the cosmology community about exactly, um, you know, what the what the future fate of the universe looks like. Um, Lawrence Krauss uh, has an interesting um, lecture about this uh, called, I think, "The Universe from Nothing," where he tries to cover it like explain how do you get something from nothing and then mm-hmm. all like just talk about physics all the way until what he hypothesized would be the end of the universe. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, uh, so, so <laughs> I, 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 I guess, I guess the, 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 this is all an interesting conversation because uh, uh, from Sort of my personal story, uh, uh, the 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 lead up for all of this was was realizing that even though um, uh, I was I was actually in quite a good place from from a theoretical perspective because our group was trying to uh, basically come up with uh, numerical predictions for variations um, on models that that could be used to explain. Um, satellite data. So, so specifically, we had we had some some previous satellite that had measured the the intensity of the cosmic microwave background at some resolution, uh, uh, and then at the time we were waiting for the Planck satellite, which was um, uh, the next generation, and it was going to get um, higher resolution uh, uh, data, and and we were we were basically anticipating that data coming and trying to look at the space of possible theories. You know, what if there's like multiple fields, or what if they they act in some in some different way or whatever, uh, uh, and so so I was I was in a really good good spot from from that perspective, and I was also in a really good spot from the perspective that Alan Guth is just an amazing person. Uh, uh, he's 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 very kind and um, uh, uh, will will calmly answer any question and also always has insightful questions. Uh, uh, but but even with all that, I realized like 
uh, I got a glimpse into what the life of a theoretician is like, and and it just seems like so much of it is working in a complete vacuum. Like like even even in in uh, uh, this sort of cosmology, it was like um, we were we were lucky to have this data, but this data is something that only comes once every ten years, um, uh, and and it's like what do you what do you do in in the interim or or what do you do when when you're doing all this uh, uh and then and then you turn around and you realize like like i i haven't been constrained by by any amount of observation um and and i think i think furthermore uh, uh i was definitely very interested in you know what is the fundamentals of reality um uh, but I realized that the that the work of a theorist is is very often uh, much more like, um, you know, here here are are five different models with with different parameters, and let's look at the at the space of of things that they predict, um, uh, or or alternatively, you know, more controversially, uh, uh, something like like string theory, um, where where you're. I remember you're being very into string theory in high school, and like I think I yeah. read a bunch of Brian Green books, and now it seems totally bunk. Like, just has not gone. Oh, well, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. I don't. Yeah. What do you What do you think about string theory? Is it Is it um, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, it, 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 I mean, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's difficult, you know, I don't, it, it, I don't have any particular perspectives on string theory. And <laughs> I mean, I think, I think you said it, 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 before we started recording that we were going to touch on any controversial topics, but here oh, we boy. are. Oh <laughs> boy, is, is this controversial? <laughs> My understanding is that it's very hard to do any sort of experiments that are falsifiable. And then yeah. in a lot of the models, they, it seems to not only predict our universe, but every possible universe in which case if you have a theory that explains everything and you can't it can't be falsified if those two uh axioms are true that's not a scientific theory in in my opinion yeah yeah i mean it, it, i think i think the it, the, the real thing is I, it, it, I feel i feel like i can't authoritatively say uh uh whether or not string theory is a is a productive research path but i yeah, i can say um uh from from my perspective that it, 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 that it looks like there's a dearth of uh new phenomena to be explained in that domain um it, it, yeah, i think this was a this was a big thing when the lhc uh came online yeah. where um they they you know made this gigantic new particle accelerator um uh and and part of it was was we predict the higgs boson would exist um and we hadn't yet found found experimental uh, I I evidence that it existed but um sort of uh, a bunch of the a bunch of the ground uh, uh the 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 standard model the standard model of quantum field theory depended on the existence of the higgs boson in order to it, to make sense so they said they said that's got to be there, um, uh, so let's look for it. Uh, and they and they found the evidence for it, um, uh, which is of course extremely important. Uh, but I think that uh, besides that, what happened was the sort of worst case scenario uh, for many people's perspectives, which is that uh, it didn't seem to unearth any qualitatively new phenomena. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. it, it, besides that, which the, it, it, the hope was that okay, we get to the next energy level, and uh, now we see something that we can't explain. Um, in in the context of our existing theories, uh, and that forces us to modify them in some material way, uh, because while they are extremely explanatory for um, the high energy physics that is known in uh, particle colliders as they exist, 
um, that that uh, it, 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 that it's also in some sense sort of ugly because it involves um, a lot of terms and a lot of arbitrary constants. Uh, uh, yeah, as well they as... were hoping for a phenomena that broke or was not explainable by the current models. Like I'm, I'm thinking about all of the famous physics discoveries that I can remember in my lifetime. And the biggest would have to be the Higgs boson, but mm -hmm. it didn't disrupt. It was just like, hey, Particle, all those particle we're good. We found the the thing that that confers mass. Yeah, but yeah. string it, theory is like we don't have any like string measurers. We don't <laughs> have any. It's a lot of. It seems to be like a lot of math. And the there's a there's definitely a small but uh, non-zero percent of the of the uh, of the scientific community, at least in theoretical physics, that were not the people going into string theory. Cause that was the big thing for a long time and still is. And they were like, I think this is a dead end. I'm going to try something different. And they're trying to do, I don't know if what the specific term is, but some sort of geometric model, their, their uh, hypothesis on why it, it's not easy to unify quantum mechanics and um, Einstein's theory of, of, of general relativity is that if you dig deep into the math, they're based on different geometries. Now I'm hmm. speaking wildly out of my domain of expertise, so I could be horribly wrong. But there's hmm. this one California, this guy who lives in California and like surfs all day. Uh, is that Lisi, Lisi Garrett? Yeah, Lisi Garrett. Yeah. And then or, or the other Garrett person Lisi. I know, yeah. yeah, Garrett Lisi. The other one I know is uh, Eric Weinstein, who's not even a physicist. He's like a math guy who does economics, but he's been working on something similar. Um, I think they spoke at one point and they had a bunch of arguments that went way over my head because, you know, um, but yeah, I was excited at least in like, hey, I haven't, I haven't heard anything like this from theoretical physics. I'm hoping that there is like, you know, what's the, what's the machine we got to build to get some data to, to figure out <laughs> if this is going to work or not. I hope it's not just like two people on a chalkboard and they're like, Oh, the whole time it was Q equals Z Y, you know, B or something. <laughs> like, I don't know what that means, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess it, 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 I definitely at some point was interested in, um, uh, I don't, I don't remember whether it's Garrett Lisi or Lisi Garrett's work, uh, uh, yeah, but he, he, he had, he, he had, he had some, he had something in, involving, involving group theory. I, I, again, I think, I think, uh, uh, sort of, sort of copping out with the same, with the same tactic that, it, it, that I did previously for string theory. I, I, I can't really like, like, uh, personally evaluate um uh his theories because uh no qualifiers it, just wildly go yeah, well, and make claims and people it, will it, 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 i think i think that yeah, there's uh uh there's there's an important perspective from which i i ran into this stuff um uh i believed that it that running with it would eventually result in some uh grand unified theory um from which i would understand the whole universe uh, and and I gradually uh, came upon uh, problems or criticisms or or sort of failures to deliver uh, uh, that that at least at the time I found I found very very disheartening. Um, I, it, it, I guess I guess I might even say betraying, although it's it, it, it's not it's not uh, betraying in the sense that some specific person made a specific promise to me uh, mm -hmm. it, it, that it, that ended up being false. Um, 
though I though I do think that there is that there is a certain um, culture around around physics that that what it is getting you is uh, a set of absolute truths. Um, I think I think I went through that and realized that that was not what I was going to get, uh, and then wasn't really sure what to do with my life because I was no longer uh, uh, interested in in pursuing theory because it didn't seem like the the road to uh, ultimate cosmic knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, it was uh, it was heartbreaking. I remember, you know, at one point feeling very nostalgic for the era of like you know Bohr and Einstein and that's mm -hmm. when like Newtonian physics like every day there was something coming out that was uh that was you know breaking those those sort of old models but they've said we're almost done with physics for a long time now and my hope is that yeah. at least sometime in our in our lives that it seems stagnant right now, but I don't think I don't think it's going to last. At least that's my hope. Um, so the, my two big loves in high school were biology and physics. Mm -hmm. And since physics, I didn't quite have enough. Uh, I mean, I was OK at math. I was pretty decent even, but it just it, it didn't inspire me the way that um, that learning about physics and then learning about biology did. So that's, and then the other thing was because molecular biology is now established, but it's been accelerating mm -hmm. <laughs> very quickly. I was like, this is going to expand for a long time. I feel like if I get enough skills in molecular biology, I'm going to be okay for a while. Um, and I, this is even before I learned about synthetic biology. That was, that was years later when I was in, uh, when I was in university, but, um, yeah, so I found uh, his name is Anthony Garrett Lisi, and his mm, theory mm -hmm. is called an exceptionally simple theory of everything. Uh, yeah, see, so the, it, so that it, it, that's that's perfect in terms of the emotional content uh, uh, of of the thing being pitched to me. Now, now he 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 calls it an exceptionally simple theory because it uh, uh, it's in reference to these simple groups um, uh, that he's that he's talking mm -hmm. about. But um, I think that that. That 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 something like that sort of perfectly encapsulates the it, it, the pitch, especially to um, uh, you know an ambitious young uh, uh, intellectual um, male such as myself of like yeah you know I I, I will I will just just study this and then I'll have the math that describes everything in the world, mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, but but the, the the more the more you look the, the you look into it um, uh, the the more you see that that. It's it's difficult to um, uh, pitch that right. So e e even even something like like quantum field theory, like like it, 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 quantum field theory is is uh, you know the standard model um, uh, is is so so uh, uh, perfect in a, um, a predictive sense that like I mentioned before that we are having difficulty designing experiments using high energy colliders that. Um, uh, that violate it in any way, uh, it, which is which is actually the thing. The thing that we want is some violation of the standard model. Right. Well, that um, that's, that makes me bummed out because we we had a plan to make a large hadron collider in Texas, and like everything mm -hmm. in Texas, it was going to be way bigger than the one that's in <laughs> France. Mm -hmm. And then we like stopped halfway through. I don't really understand why, but I remember seeing some very sort of creepy photos and videos because they they were like laying the tunnel. 
mm-hmm. and then just never finished it. So there's like this giant concrete sort of underground bunker type thing. And um, I'm wondering if the guys at CERN were like, man, if we only had a couple kilometers more track, like we could, <laughs> we could be taking swings at this thing. Um, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I guess, I guess that that sort of that sort of is the question of basically whether whether you expect this. So the it, 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 the person whose arguments I'm drawing from now are um, Sabine Hassenfelder. Uh, she has a book called Lost in Math, um, which which makes the argument that I that I essentially agree with now, um, which is that uh, the 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 physics community um, and specifically the theoretical physics community needs to come up with um, some experimental paradigm other than uh, uh, building accelerators that cost more and more billions of dollars uh, in order to probe fundamental physics uh, because mm. um, uh, it, 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 I think I think she she says this specifically in reference to the to the LHC but it, it, but more generally it's just these these undertakings are extraordinarily expensive uh, uh, and yet um, uh, besides the confirmation of the existence of the Higgs boson, which of course was a uh, extremely awesome uh, technical result, uh, that that they haven't paid off uh, in in the way that we wanted, and so the, the the question is, you know, oh well, if the if the LHC hasn't paid off, do we need to do, uh, you know, one that's a hundred billion or a trillion dollars, and you know, it goes around the entire world and, yeah. and stuff like that, um, uh, or or do we need do we need some different paradigm? Uh, it's it it's it might be a case of diminishing returns where we've got like ninety five percent of the discoverable data in this type of smash things together and see what happens experiment mm-hmm. and that there might be a little bit more out there to to find but it's just the 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 amount of engineering and expense uh is maybe not worth it um i i'll tell you what what one of my favorite physics experiments to do at home is mm-hmm. is the double slit I, you know you just cut a couple lines and then you put it up to the wall and there's like six different lines and you're like wait i don't and then you learn about how light is also somewhat of a wave mm-hmm. i remember specifically showing it to my sister and uh i think my one of my parents and i was trying to explain it to them and they were like this doesn't make any <laughs> so weird why why does it do that and i'm like I told you it's lights a wave yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I think I think that it, that that's that's interesting uh, because it, 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 I feel like I feel like lately in the in the past year or so, and we can we can sort of talk more about about that trajectory. But I've been trying to uh, be attuned to um, what what are the sorts of things that you can do cheaply. Uh, right. Uh, you know, it, 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 what what are the sort of experiments that that even someone could do um, uh, on on their own um, in their own home? Uh, and specifically, you know, thinking thinking about biology, this this is is uh, it's kind of difficult because there's a lot of um, experiments that require uh, very technical setups in order to demonstrate what you would want to demonstrate at the level of detail that is considered, uh, uh, you know, necessary for proving discoveries uh, in the current biological milieu. So uh, I really want a home lab. That's my dream right now is like, I want to go live in the country mm -hmm. and do some homesteading (laughs) because I miss working with my hands and uh, trees. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then the other thing is I want a home biotech lab. 
so that's really one of my only motivations for making money is like, I, I would totally do the, the like Instagram models on a, on a boat, like, uh, like Dan Bulzerian, I would live his lifestyle for a week mm-hmm. and then be like, that was fun. I'm glad I know what that's like. Now I'm going to go buy a <laughs> flow cytometer and hang out at my house. Um, uh, I'm hoping that as the cost of those pieces of equipment goes down, that DIY bio becomes actually viable right now. I've seen some of those DIY bio labs and, um, with the exception of maybe one or two of the really big ones that have like decent outsized funding, outside funding. Um, I'm not, I'm not super impressed by, uh, by DIY bio, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that they, that's interesting because you can compare uh, DIY bio to, um, you know, sort of, sort of early, early science in the scientific revolution, right? You take someone like, um, uh, von Leeuwenhoek, for instance, um, and he he just uh, he just I believe made his own microscopes, right? Uh, uh, it, it just looked at this stuff and just gathered pond water and and looked at it. Um, I could be pulling this out of my out of my ass, but uh, if similar to how the Wright brothers were like bicycle mechanics, I think mm-hmm. he was a lens crafter. Like he made oh, okay. glasses or something, and then. He was like, well, what if I just stick like nine of these in a row and just keep magnifying? Right, right. And he started looking at, you know, slices of cork and pond water and whatnot. And he was like, wow, there's some swimming things in here. Yeah. But it, 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 but I guess they, it, um, uh, like everyone in that age of science uh, was just making the tools that they needed in order to make their discoveries as they went. Mm-hmm. Um and now uh, uh, they were also almost entirely aristocrats, um, right. so they had a tremendous amount of of time uh, as well as expendable money. Uh, but on on the other hand, they were they were doing it um, outside uh, of these uh, institutional contexts, uh, driven right. by just um, whatever whatever they thought was relevant. Uh, and so so I guess they, it, it, there there is an interesting uh, uh, question: the degree to which like how much of that um, was they were picking low-hanging fruit, how much of that was they were enabled by um, uh, what is for most people unrealistic unrealistic degrees of uh, freedom in terms of time and money, uh, or, or how much of that is just is, is due to uh, the effect of people copying uh, what, what they believe uh, scientists do uh, mm-hmm. Now, right? So, like, like you know, a scientist in 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 order to demonstrate something in biology, you know, a scientist needs to have a flow cytometer, uh, uh, or or something like that, or needs to have a PCR machine. Um, but is that true? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I will say if we if we talk about um, you know research uh, interests coming up soon, I will say that that as I've uh, uh, started thinking about um, formulating uh, specific biological questions that. Uh, you do tend to reach for the for the newest shiniest tools, um, uh, in part because they're they, they, they're new and shiny because uh, uh, because they they solve some problem that uh, a lot of people want to know how to solve. You know things like single cell RNA sequencing or something like that. Right. Um, uh, and and in part because uh, 
uh, there's so many people in such a long tradition that if you have tools that have been around for a while, uh, then there is reason to believe that most of the questions that can be asked uh, using those tools have have already been asked and uh, answered to some degree. But there's there's a but in there, which is if if you are asking a sufficiently uh, orthogonal question to what the current <laughs> MO and you know special sciences that everyone is researching, and you get really clever with the molecular biology or the way you set up the experiment, you don't need the fancy the, the like. Right when uh, when COVID started, everyone was like, oh, mm -hmm. no, we need to make home test kits for everyone, uh, mm -hmm. but we don't have thermocyclers for everyone. And even if we did, we can't teach the average person how to use it. Um, but there's a way to do isothermal uh, amplification. It's, uh, I believe it's called LAMP. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it stands for, but basically with, with clever setup, you do away with the uh, with the need for this heavy, expensive piece of equipment that basically like cycles through heating temperatures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I think it, 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 first off, yeah, I think I think I've heard uh, people talking about lamp sequencing. I think I think that, that that's something that at least some places have tried to release for COVID. Um, uh, which, which is definitely very exciting. Um, I think, I think separately, uh, I don't entirely understand how that would work on the basis of my high school knowledge of how PCR works. <laughs> Loop mediated. This is, yeah. So I, I, I try to remember, I knew it was, uh, sort of something clever with the, uh, with the primers. So you need a reverse transcriptase cause it's, it's RNA. And, um, I believe the ends sort of loop on themselves and prime themselves somehow hmm. loop mediated isothermal amplification. So I would probably need to watch a video on this, but anyways, the point yeah. is that the molecular biology allows you to sort of get around like this is, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, directed evolution techniques and for mm -hmm. a long time, the only thing on the block was um, uh, not mage, uh, pace, phage assisted continuous evolution. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, you're evolving proteins and a, and a virus and it's affecting cells. And this looks so cool. I want to build this in my garage. But no one can get, or very few people can get pace to work outside of the one Harvard lab. And then uh, one of George Church's like, um, research kids you need like a lagoon and you have to have, make sure the virus is coming and washing at a certain pace and then the the uh the the cells are being washed out and it's very tricky um but there's been other methods that have been designed like compartmentalized partner replication i actually work with one of the people who who um who worked on that where um you know you don't need these complicated lagoons you don't need any sort of phage, you're setting up the, you have like a, a biosensor in front of a polymerase mm -hmm. so that you, you're not transcribing any of the polymerase unless um, you can basically relieve that repression by like producing some 
some compound. And if you do, and you relieve it a lot, you make a lot of polymerase. And then you basically use that amount of polymerase to amplify the stretch of DNA that codes for the thing that's doing the reaction. But the other cool thing is that it's not even in cells. It's compartmentalized hmm. in the sense that you, you make these extremely tiny uh, water oil uh, emulsions, basically. Like picture hmm. when you make a salad and you stir up oil and, and, and vinegar or water or whatever, you make those like little bubbles. So imagine that it's mm -hmm. so small that it basically just looks like foam. And then in each one of those is, is basically like a uh, mini prepped plasmid. Mm -hmm. And so you have this reaction happening at an extremely small scale and, and, you know, you, you're doing the biochemical reaction, you make the final product, the final product relieves the repression on the polymerase, you make the polymerase, and then there's a way to do the PCR, mm -hmm. which amplifies you've, you've connected your, your phenotype back to the genotype without popping the bubbles. And then you bring it all back together and you add a backbone and you recapture. Uh, so everything that's successful has uh, reproduced exponentially <laughs> with the PCR and you clone that back into your backbone and then you do a very rough back of the napkin uh, calculation uh, called the enrichment factor. It's not like mm -hmm. a standard unit or, 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 or like, it's specific for directed evolution techniques, but like after one cycle of directed evolution, how much more enriched are your winners than your losers. And for CPR, it happens to be really good. The issue with CPR is that it's very difficult to have it work um, one at all, but uh, you know, initially it was hard to get it to work on anything besides polymerases. But now if you try to connect it to an enzyme, it's still very tricky. So better directed so, evolution techniques. So how it, 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 uh, I think I think I missed something. How how does the does the phenotypic selection feedback? Mm. Okay, so suppose you have um, uh, a a ramnose uh, repressed uh, promoter in front of your polymerase. So mm -hmm. uh, you need the presence of ramnose to to bind to the repressor, relieve it. And then mm -hmm. allow, you know, the 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 RNA of the polymerase to be synthesized and then converted to to, to your enzyme. Um, and then suppose upstream of that in the in the plasmid mm -hmm. is the enzyme that that changes uh, some feed product into ramnose. You're converting okay. it in the system. You for some reason I don't know why you would want this enzyme, but you're like. I would love an enzyme that's mm -hmm. really good at making ramnose. I'm tired of all these other sugars. <laughs> it's ramnose for me all the way. So, so you um, can you can do this for for any and any any phenotype which is itself a thing that can bind a promoter. In yeah. theory, yeah. Any compound that has a biosensor for it, mm -hmm. and by biosensor, I mean literally like biosensors exist on a couple different flavors they get very complicated and mm -hmm. but the ones that i care about are it's a protein that acts as a clamp on a specific mm -hmm. stretch of dna generally a promoter region and you unclamp it 
in, by the presence of some compound. So um, uh, vanillic acid is a good one. Mm -hmm. uh, tetracycline is a good inducible promoter. Um, the, the lactose inducible promoter, you can reprieve uh, with lactose or, or IPTG. That's a very common one in lab. Arabnose, Ramnose. Um, the marionette inducible promoters is the one that, uh, that Adam worked on because he was trying to make them specifically like engineered to be inducible linearly over, I think, three orders of magnitude, which is very cool. Interesting. Uh, Can not, you... not very usual in, uh, in, in biosensor stuff. I, I assume, I assume if this were possible that, that someone would try to, can you, can you like conjugate the, um, the, the promoter to an antibody so that you can now, now have like an arbitrary, uh, biosensor. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I don't know. Mm. So antibody binds to the promoter. How would you relieve it though? I don't know anything about it. I don't know much about immunology because my understanding is antibodies are very good at sticking, but they're not very good at unsticking. Well, yeah, that, that, that's sort of their whole deal. <laughs> you need the you yeah. need the un the un you need the unclicking for mm -hmm. for for good. Although there might be a way to like instead of trying to relieve repression, you repress something that's repressing the expression. You like, you see what I'm mm. saying? You back mm -hmm. it up. This is gonna be quickly become a Rube Goldberg machine of, of, bio, <laughs> of molecular biology. But like, hypothetically, you mm -hmm. have something that is, um, the repressor is doing its thing and then you repress the repressor yep. with the antibody and then you get transcription of whatever it is that is your shiny. My, uh, my you know, uh, cheeky way of describing molecular biology to people is uh, it's, a, it's a history of making small things sticky or shiny. So yeah, <laughs> at, at some point you, you added the sticky thing and then your final product is something shiny and you measure it with lasers or. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, think, I think earlier we, we got on, we, we, we got on this, um, this this whole directed evolution system by by uh, you mentioned uh, this the, it, 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 this question of of what is the set of questions that you can ask with tools that already exist and that people have just skipped over because they're not they're not trendy or they weren't thinking about them uh, or something so so one one that I ran into uh, a little bit ago was um, viroids. So viroids are a specific class of, of infectious agents uh, that are, um, so just like, just like you have prions, where prions are infectious agents that are made purely of protein, mm -hmm. uh, uh, viroids are the nucleic acid version of that. So viroids um, are, are infectious agents that are made uh, exclusively of RNA. Um, uh, it, 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 which, is, which is really interesting. Actually, uh, they, they were- don't make they any, were... they don't code for any protein? No, no. Um, <laughs> super weird yeah yeah it is it, 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 it is it is extremely weird um uh and and whenever uh you know i haven't uh, i haven't pitched this to to many biologists specifically but um uh people people tend to be really surprised by it uh despite the fact that these were discovered in like the 70s um actually at at around the same time as uh prions which are uh, are very famous um 
were discovered. So this uh, is like this is this is uh, uh, very much like one of those you know so-called replicators that you read about in um, uh, Dawkins' Selfish Gene book, where he's hypothesizing mm-hmm. about how life is like you know it's sort of understood that viruses are not quite alive but they've what they've done is simplified the whole thing into a really convenient package mm-hmm. um that is just utterly like nothing can compete with how how quickly they replicate and and this seems to be even simpler the only thing i can think of that would be simpler than than one of these viroids um would be um spiegelman's monster which I don't know if you've heard of this experiment, but but very similar thing is 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 a coding strand that coded for like one thing that just replicated itself. Yeah, and it yeah. became really really short. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think that that's um, uh, that that's a interesting uh, uh, example. Yeah, I, I think people are very interested in in RNA and like uh, one of the you know, dominant theories of how life originated is this RNA world hypothesis. So that, you know, originally life was just RNA and then you had, you know, RNA plus DNA and then you had, or sorry, you had RNA plus protein and then you had RNA plus DNA plus protein. Uh, uh, and also at some point you had lipid membranes thrown in there. And and I'm sure that it, it, that there's that there's pretty much every permutation of of, uh, of ordering that stuff uh, depending on who you ask, but. So um, speaking of, of, uh, of talking about controversial opinions yeah. um, in, in your, you know when you read about theories of abiogenesis are you an rna world first guy or a metabolism first guy uh the, uh, i don't i don't have an opinion on that sorry sorry <laughs> i have i have no hot takes okay um, <laughs> um yeah sorry <laughs> no 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 i um, i i've i've read both theories and i'm not like particularly inspired by one or, or the other the the RNA one makes sense to me uh, sort of intuitively because RNA can form much more interesting, um, not origami, but basically it can fold on itself in a particular way. And you have these entities called RNA zymes. Mm-hmm. They're enzymes exclusively made from RNA, um, as well as, uh, you know, you can make... Um, uh, what are those things called? Aptamers. So there mm-hmm. was this this very uh, selects, I believe, selective enrichment and exponential something. But they found that RNA that can bind very tightly to certain molecules and, and proteins and stuff. Um, whereas DNA is sort of, it's, it's a little bit harder to, to, to do that with. But on the metabolism side, there are these things called uh, autocatalytic sets or biolytic mm, mm-hmm. biochemical basically you have a reaction a goes to b b goes to c c goes to d d goes to a or something like that mm-hmm. and they're all uh not at equilibrium with each other so it just keeps going around and around and around but by the property of whatever compounds these are even if you dump in a lot of A or remove a ton of D and sort of ruin the, the Le Chatelier's principle, mm-hmm. these particular sets are super stable and they move right back to this 
what would you call it? Like a stable point that's yet away from equilibrium. They just keep turning and turning and turning. Just um, keep cranking out stuff. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And they're not going anywhere in any sense in that like, you know, you're spinning all of these, you know, A to B, C to, you know, all that stuff. But if you look at the Krebs cycle, that is, you know, in one sense, uh, I don't know if it's autocatalytic, but it is a circle that spins round and round. And we happen to extract very useful, you know, energy containing compounds out of that. And uh, it's not impossible to think that, you know, you had these little pools in early earth with the right mm -hmm. compounds that started making these, these little autocatalytic biochemical sets and some early replicator, you know, somehow found use out of that. There's, it's, it's difficult to connect from the like clearly not alive, but sort of cool thing. Like, oh, it's a molecule that replicates itself and like uh, biochemicals that sort of like spin around to like E. coli is so simple, but in comparison, it is so complicated to compare that to what is essentially, you know, like dish soap and some clever chemistry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I feel like just, just naively, it'd, it'd be hard to, it, it, it seems, it seems obvious to me that, it, that both of those uh, uh, things are prerequisites for life. Uh, and it's not clear to me how you would distinguish uh, One or the uh, other, yeah. even, even in principle, which came first. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, it, I mean, with with RNA at the it, at the very least, we do have uh, uh, this this clear example of of extant uh, replication machines. You know, whether of course whether you want to call them alive is uh, I think more mm -hmm. of a semantic issue. Um, these 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 uh, it, it, it replicating machines that um, yeah that that are made solely of RNA. Uh, so the the guy who discovered uh, uh, these viroids um, was this guy Theodore Diener. Um, uh, so we did it in the 70s, and and he actually worked in collaboration with um, the guy whose name I forget, who discovered prions, uh, uh, because he he originally thought that the um, uh, it's not tobacco mosaic virus. I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm I'm forgetting I'm forgetting all the specifics. But there's the it, it, there's there's a plant disease um, uh, that was caused by some agent, uh, and Diener actually um, initially suspected that it might have been a protein agent, that it might have been a prion, uh, uh, and mm. so he worked with um, with the with the prion guy uh, on that. So they so they crossed paths, uh, uh, but then. Uh, basically, what happened was that um, prions were found to be implicated in diseases uh, that are relevant to humans, uh, so like Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease and scrapie and and mad cow. Um, mad cow uh, whereas... was the one I know because I was really pissed because um, I, I go to Italy about once a year because I got family over there on my mom's side, and I am mm -hmm. obsessed with salami and prosciutto. Like I love it so much, and it used to be that you could take that stuff home. And then <laughs> fucking Brits with their fucking mad cow disease made it so that it was illegal to import food. And just mm -hmm. to tell a, a quick funny story, um, well, I was vegetarian, but she would always sort of, you know, put, put a couple salami in her suitcase and bring them back home when I couldn't go with her, uh, which made me very happy. But uh, one time, this is back in like uh, late 90s, I think, uh, she got caught in Texas. Mm -hmm where they take the mad cow very seriously because they got a big, big, uh, big beef industry. So mm -hmm. um, ever since that, she would always get, she, you know, she lied. She was like, I don't have anything. And then they found it and they were like, oh my God. And she was like, look, I'm vegetarians for my kids. Like I'm not, but they always pulled her aside from then on. 
Um, and then like years and years later, when uh, my parents decided to adopt my sister, Stella from, from China, it's a very long process or a lot of back and forth. It took like a year. She got a letter from the Chinese government saying, hey, you're on a list of like known smugglers. Can you explain <laughs> why you appear on? And she was like, I'm not, <laughs> what am I like a drug smuggler? No, it's Salabi, it's not. It's... So it's, it's, yeah, it was very funny that that sort of held up the process for, uh, for a couple of weeks while they got that sorted out. I think um, the... Uh... I think the clear path forward here is to uh, just legislate against, um, you know, highly stable protein confirmations. Uh, I think I think yes. we can just outlaw them, and then we won't have to worry about prions anymore. Everyone knows that uh, the fastest way to get rid of something is by making it illegal on paper. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's never failed. Um, Sorry, uh, so I, I cut you off with that story. Prions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, so Crutzfield Jacobs and yeah. So, so the, it 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 prines, prines have since become uh uh you know it, 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 it relatively well known uh, amongst amongst biologists at least. Yeah. And then and then also amongst the general public uh, uh for like the mad cow scare um, or things like uh, fatal familial insomnia. Um, whereas whereas viroids on the other hand uh, uh they were originally discovered in plants. Um, and the the only known viroids um, are still in plants. Uh, uh, and so at least uh, hmm. Diener's, Diener's perspective is basically that's why no one cares about them. Uh, so it, it, I, I, I learned about viroids from like in a side in a virology um, set of virology lectures that, that I was watching by, by Vincent Racaniello, who is great, great podcast called This Week in Virology. Um, uh and and he he mentioned viroids as an aside um, when just talking about sort of other weird uh, infectious agents, um, and mentioned that they're only in plants. And I said that that sounds that sounds really weird. Like if we if we believe um, uh, in this RNA world hypothesis, which uh, Vincent Racaniello at least is an RNA world guy. So <laughs> uh, uh, if if we if we believe that this is true, um, that all of life originated from uh, auto, autocatalytic. RNA, then uh, if we have an extant example of that, then it would be very bizarre if it were isolated to just this one kingdom, right? You would expect it to it, it, to see it as pathogenic agent in in uh, essentially all branches of life. Um, and so I went I went looking for this, uh, uh, trying to see like has someone looked for viroids uh, outside of plants? And I found uh, an essay written by. Theodore Diener, uh, the guy who discovered this stuff in the 70s, um, about how no one had bothered to do this. <laughs> uh, uh, and the, it, 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 his, his diagnosis, which, which I was thinking, okay, maybe he's just being a bit salty because he was a plant guy. But his, his diagnosis was basically like, look, no one, no one gives a shit about this uh, because it's just in plants and no one cares about what happens to plants except for- They don't make plants. anyone sick? Is that- <laughs> plants sick well they they, they 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 make they make plants sick so it's it's relevant to uh, uh agronomy um okay uh, but but for but they don't make people sick yeah so everyone was like ah oh, well yeah yeah so they, they there's they they there there appears to be um this this is his diagnosis i i, I don't work in plants but i mean i i feel like the the comparison between viroids and prions which were discovered at the same time and prions which became very well known and viroids which are still 
like you tell people about it and they're like, wait, what? <laughs> um, uh, that would that would seem to be an explanation for for the divergence and sort of and sort of why they're known. Uh, uh, but but he was talking about this and he said, look, basically no one has bothered to do a systematic search for mm -hmm. viroids in animals. Um, which, which I believe is, is something that we could, uh, do nowadays. So I was, I was talking about this, um, uh, with, <laughs> uh, uh, with, I would say an internet friend of mine, uh, it's a guy on Twitter named Hal Fords. He's a professional virologist, but I don't know his name or <laughs> where he actually works. Um, uh, but I was, I was talking, uh, with him about this and, and he was saying, yeah, you could, you could do, uh, deep sequencing searches for it, uh, in the way that, um, we currently do for viruses. So there's a project currently going on, which unfortunately I forget the name of, but uh, where where they're taking a bunch of uh, raw sequence information uh, mm -hmm. that they have from various uh, samples. So whether it's humans or animals or whatever, uh, uh, and you take the raw sequence information, which uh, uh, before before you're filtering it. Um, you know, contains in addition to the genetic sequences of the of the uh, animal or plant or uh, organism that that you care about sequencing, it will also have mixed up in it, you know, bacteria and viruses um, and stuff that are that are infecting that. Uh, and so there are like exabytes of of no exabytes is too much petabytes. Petabytes. <laughs> there are there 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 are petabytes yeah. of, of of data. Um, of just uh, these these raw um, sequence reads, um, which usually when you're analyzing them to do things like um, you know you want to sequence the gene of the, the genome of some species or whatever, you're you're filtering out uh, all of that all of that crap that's either sample contamination or infectious um, uh, agents or whatever because you want to get just at it. Uh, but but their approach is instead you take all of this raw information and you just look for everything that looks kind of like a coronavirus. <laughs> yeah um, so like when we do stuff like that it's generally what we call a metagenomic screen so it's like yeah we want some enzyme we're trying to make cannabinoids and yeast we want an enzyme that turns you know a to b mm -hmm. and so obviously one of the things that we use is the enzyme that occurs in uh cannabis plants but we'll mm -hmm. blast that we'll use the 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 um base local alignment search tool mm -hmm. nailed it uh to, to find everything that looks similar to either the dna sequence or the amino acid sequence and then we get these like tens of thousands of of uh of like uh, uh proteins and dna sequences and then we'll basically print those and then do screening and mm -hmm. and make a ladder and say like hey uh, these particular enzymes are really good at doing this reaction much better than these other ones. But, but what you're talking about is like every single stretch of DNA sequence yeah. and looking for the needle in the, in the, in the haystack. Yeah. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of, of computational work um, uh, at least the, the, the way they're doing it, which, which is, I think, uh, you know, part of why this thing, isn't necessarily typically done, uh, uh, but they are doing it for coronaviruses for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so one 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 approach to this question that that you could take would be to basically um, do that, uh, except for signatures that that correspond to viroids, um, uh, and and see what you get. Um, so, so I 
I haven't, I haven't, I haven't looked further into that. Uh, they, they, that's, that's just sort of one that I'm, that I'm keeping in my back pocket as a potentially that, interesting that project. Super, super interesting. Um, that and, and I mean, abiogenesis. I think mm -hmm. you might be able to do some of those experiments uh, quite cheaply. Hmm. Um, I, well, I, I mean, of course, my whiteboards are filled with ideas I have for for specific like synthetic biology and, and synthetic biochemistry type setups. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of them still require uh, equipment or at least reagents. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, man, there's this there's setup only. Uh, the, 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 this this particular setup only requires a a, a stupendous amount of money poured into your AWS account. <laughs> uh, which which I'd be I'd be interested in seeing uh, once they're once they're done with this deep sequencing experiment. Like how much compute did it cost them? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because I think you know, it, 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 depending depending on how cheap it is, then uh, maybe you could you could go go pitch someone on on look, we get to uh, uh, discover this this entirely new class of organisms within animals. Um, of, could you do uh, anything of sort of? Agents. Could you do something distributed? Like I know, I think the Baker Lab put out a game called Fold It, where they mm -hmm. just gave you protein sequences, which is normally very hard to try to get them to calculate all the folds. And they just put it in the hands of lay people. And they're like, try to fold this on your computer and see what happens. And they solve the, the folding pattern and structure mm -hmm. for like two or three different proteins just by like tossing it out into the internet. So I'm wondering if there, there might be a way to uh, like distribute the computing power across, um, you know, yeah. people and gamifying you know it because that always makes things better. That's, the, it, that's actually a really interesting question because um, uh, I know... My dad a couple of months ago was was trying <laughs> was trying to pitch me on this specifically because he he set up uh, his computer to do some folded homework, and uh, your dad he, sounds he was... awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's a cool guy, um, uh, and 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 he set it up, and then he went and checked back on it, and he noticed that that uh, it wasn't doing anything, uh, and he was and he was perplexed, but then but then he realized that that was because like. Uh, so many people had signed up for this. Uh, I think in part because there was some coronavirus research that was that was going going through it, uh, mm -hmm. that that they had actually just like worked through the queue of work that was uh, that was available at Folded Home. Um, so uh, uh, he was like, "Hey, you should you should brainstorm types of computational problems that you could use that you could farm out to people." Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that would be a really a really uh, interesting idea. Yeah, and I guess if anyone else is is listening to this, I'm it, I'm not exactly sure what the application process is for uh, being able to put work on the folded home queue, <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh, that that would be a potential way to uh, not have a exorbitant AWS bill. There's got to be I don't I haven't heard of anything like Foldit where. Uh, they outsourced work to the average layperson, um, mm -hmm. but there's got to be more examples. And I feel like you know, there's got to be a, a uh, there's probably a, a common set of of um, uh, features in the success mode. Like, how do you do it and and make it work, and not just have it be like a, a like a giant prestige? Um, oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. So. We're coming up a little bit. I wanted to give us like another five or 10 minutes to keep talking because this is awesome. But I know I did not exhaust either of our wells of talking about science. <laughs> and I'm thinking that it would make sense to probably do like a part two and, yeah. and talk about your other research interest and um, 
more about what we were talking about when we first met up about sort of synthetic biology and uh, the, the, the future, where we're thinking that is, is going to go. And then also academia and education, because mm -hmm. I know that you are considering you're on the cusp of going back to academia for, for a PhD. I can't save you. And, um, <laughs> I'm in industry and obviously I've gone back and forth about going for one, but, um, you know, now with coronavirus, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult to bring groups of young people together, pile them into a classroom to, uh, to get degrees. So uh, I know that was a lot at once, but um, yeah, I'm not trying to hit the, the stop on the, on the science discussion, but um, anyways, we can always cut this, but <laughs> would, you, would you be down for, I don't know if you're uh, doing anything on, uh, do you have Monday off? Um, Monday, uh, do, 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 Monday. um, I, I should, I should be good on, on Monday. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm also good for, uh, you know, it, 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 I don't know if you have anything, but I'm, I'm good to keep going until I don't have anything until six. <laughs> oh, I, I was saying that I, I have to go. Yeah. 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 Um, it, because it, I made the mistake of scheduling this. And putting it on my calendar and only made the uh, alarm for like 10 minutes ahead of time. I knew we had set it up. I just remember when. Yeah. I yeah. set up a date with my girlfriend who was like, <laughs> are you driving on your way over yet? And I'm like, oh, just, I'm coming soon. So <laughs> I, I don't, uh, God, I hate cutting off the, that was a good flow. No, but, no. Um, yeah, let's, let's shoot for monday maybe around like four ish i'm mm -hmm. thinking and what i can do is is we can pick it up very quickly to where we left off and i have this like video slash audio editing tool where you can like cut things and mm -hmm. we can basically be like ah we took a break and then <laughs> pick up in part two and People will be like, "This looks like a different day. It's raining outside." I don't think they took a. Break. <laughs> that was a very long break. Well, but if they're anyways. if they're listening, you know, if they're if they're listening on the uh, the podcast, then uh, then they won't they won't see the ruse. <laughs> Listen, all three of my very dedicated listeners are experts in podcastology, and they'll be able to, <laughs> to tell of the cut, and they'll send me personal emails. Nick, are you okay? Like, what happened? I heard I heard the hard cut. <laughs> And, uh, and of course, I'll respond to every single one of them and, you know, long form prose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, clearly joking. Although the podcast did recently reach Apple. So, yeah, everything that's, is through that's Anchor. So it gets pushed to like all the other platforms, but like at sort of slow and unintuitive rates. <laughs> so, um, it's eventually consistent. Eventually. Anyways, yeah, I'm. Uh, listen, you. Maybe they're not the most polite way to say this, but you popped your cherry in, in podcasting. <laughs> there you, that, that's you know. Uh, so how do you feel? Yeah, I feel I feel good. Uh, it, it, I feel like I'm going to cringe when I listen to this and hear all of the ums and stutterings and whatever. But I think oh, uh, I, I said I um that, like 87 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, it, I think uh, I think that the that. The conversation has, has gone pretty well and i'm uh, excited to keep talking about other stuff Me i think too, i think i'll look smart 
<laughs> I think yes. I think we'll both look smart. It'll, couple it'll be of, good. Couple of nerds talking about viroids. That was really cool, though. I didn't I didn't know about viroids. And uh, well, they, they, that's the thing. Research. No Nobody one, knows, no one about, knows about Yeah, <laughs> that's that's sort of the whole point. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I think... gonna definitely do some research on uh, on 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 uh, Dinar and uh, who's this other guy? The podcast you sent me about Racinello, Racaniello. Oh yeah. Oh, he, he has he has a whole. You should uh, uh, if you're if you're not familiar with this stuff, he has a whole podcast empire. Uh, there's like there's like eight of them. Uh, so, so he's, he's a virologist. Yeah. He's, he's a virologist and his main one is this week in virology, uh, which he started like 10 years ago or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but then, uh, it's this whole like microbe.tv. So they've got this week in microbiology, this week in parasitism. Uh, there's one called immune on immunology. There's Twivo, which is this week in evolution. Um, this week in neuroscience that one just recently started, but the, this week in virology is actually weekly or actually significantly more than weekly nowadays. I think since the whole coronavirus thing started, they've been doing like two or three a week. Um, uh, whereas the other ones are mostly actually monthly despite being called this weekend. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, they, they, they're, they're really good uh, podcasts. And so they do some combination of, uh, of having guests on and interviewing them or like just reviewing papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they're all, they're all slightly uh, no. differently formatted. I would love to hear them review. There's like some crazy papers that um, I read or like read the the, uh, the the title and the abstract for talking mm-hmm. about the, the lab origin hypothesis. <laughs> and um, there are ways to hypothesize about a lab origin hypothesis that are like okay you're well within you know maybe possibly okay i get it and then there's this crazy stuff where (laughs) somehow i think the research was maybe like sponsored by something connected to steve bannon yes showed this crazy engineering setup where it was like a 24-step method with like all sorts of like covering your tracks and doing mm-hmm. like a cloning step in like three parts. It just made no sense. And, <laughs> and people in the Synbio world were really laughing at it. Like no one would ever do it this way. If you're going to engineer yeah. it, you'd make it way easier on yourself than this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah they, they, they are have to say on that. The, uh, the, 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 the true folks are definitely, uh, definitely anti lab origin. Um, uh, I think it, 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 I think I think possibly to to more of a degree than than is warranted. I mean, I think it, 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 my my perspective on the whole lab origin thing is like uh, it, 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 it. I guess the the hypothesis that it's engineered seems like quite unlikely. The hypothesis that um, there was a sample present in the lab and then someone someone got infected or or you know other otherwise somehow uh, released the sample that was collected from the wild in the lab is like they, 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 there's no there's no evidence that would be able to distinguish those hypotheses and also it's the sort yeah, of thing I, that that has been known to happen so it could have happened but um that i think that's the only theory that people who take the lab origin hypothesis seriously that are technically minded will, will yeah. say is like uh minimally plausible like it i don't think it's engineered but the fact that the virology institute was so close to the ground zero for the for the first couple of patients 
and that they were stuttering bat coronaviruses. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, you know, this lab has had, I, I think they had a safety thing many years ago with, with uh, coronavirus samples. I was like, okay, this thing maybe got out or they were studying like gain of function, uh, like moving it from, from bat to, to human cells. Yeah. But like, it would be really obvious if it was engineered. It might've been passaged in the lab or something, or, but I, I don't, yeah, it's not like a, it, if it's a bioweapon, it's a really shitty bioweapon. I know that sounds <laughs> horrible to say, but like you would do way better if you just released smallpox without yeah. any engineering. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, these people really think that like, it was a weapon that's not that great at killing people that they like also changed the blast data bank to make sure that it did not have <laughs> crazy <laughs> stuff. So um, anyways, the, one yeah. of the problems with this is that it's become so goddamn political that like you can't even articulate uh, hypotheticals without like with certain people anyways. Yeah. And, the, and, and, and I mean, also that, that there would be, you know, with, with any of these hypotheses, there would be, there would be no way to definitively disprove but it. Like the, 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 the most recent one that you were talking about, I think their, their central claim relied on, look, uh, uh, the, the initial paper published about the origins of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus says that um, it is most closely phylogenetically related to this red G13 um, genome, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they claim that Red G thirteen was was isolated from bats, but um, the the only the only verifiable existence uh, of this Red G Red G thirteen thing is is uh, the sequence that was uh, submitted to GenBank um, about a week after they submitted the uh, original paper um, to. I forget where they where they submitted the paper to it to publish, but they submitted the paper on January twentieth, and then they submitted the, the the sequence was uploaded to GenBank on January twenty seventh, um, uh, and so so the, the the sort of the sort of central claim there is is like look they 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 could have they could have made this up somehow, um, yeah I, I I agree that the that the engineering scheme is like yeah the, whatever diagram they had is like what this this doesn't make this doesn't make any sense, but I mean it, 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 I feel like you don't need to if that's the claim that you're writing on, you don't need to have any mechanism. You can just say, look, it's a, uh, uh, it's a, it's a web form that you can upload to, and you can put any sequence of nucleotides in there that you want. <laughs> uh, it, it, so, so the way to disprove this would be to isolate um, a sample of RATG13 in, in the wild. But of course, now mm-hmm. that the existence or non-existence of RATG13 is a, is a political issue because uh, its existence depends, it, it, it basically, the, it, it, this question of whether China was engineering a bioweapon hinges on the existence of this RATG13 genome. Now, like before you could theoretically have sent someone in there to, to do more bet sampling and then they find it. But of course now it's like, well, uh, if you send someone in, in and do that, then they were manufacturing this evidence, you know, on the basis of like the Chinese government or whatever. They infected right? bats yeah. with the original <laughs> sample of the virus and made yeah. it so that they would find, like, they'll never convince people once they've established that their, their belief in certain things. Um, yeah. I was surprised that they were not looking harder for the, um, the, the zoological transmission like for a while, they thought it was in like pangolins and there was like bats, bats, pangolin, whatever. 
I thought that they were going to be looking for some of the like patient zero animals perhaps, um, or like try to find a population pool. Like maybe there was a specific bat in that mm -hmm. area that had it. But as far as I know, they, they, they weren't looking, uh, or they weren't looking for it and they weren't culling any, any animal populations, but I could be wrong about that. I haven't really followed a lot of this stuff too closely just because at a certain point you just, I'm like, I got to disengage from this. This is crazy. <laughs> So, um, Adam, I'm going to let you go. I really want to thank you for, for coming on. This was, uh, this was awesome. And, yeah. um, I know I sort of, you know, sprung a part two on you when maybe ah, you weren't yeah, expecting good. it, but, uh, I, I feel like there's, there's still a whole lot to talk about. We only did like an hour and a half. Like that, yeah, that, yeah. those no, 90 we got, minutes flew by. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't even talked about transmissible cancers at all. We haven't talked about you know, secret specific nucleic acid immunity. We haven't talked about academia. We haven't talked about, you know, the future of uh, scientific research funding. So we, we haven't talked about psychedelics. Part. Listen, everything I yeah. know about <laughs> podcasting came from Joe Rogan and I'm pretty sure it's a requirement <laughs> to talk about DMT once an episode. So, uh, 